I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we are walking our way through some of the signs, actually all the signs in John's gospel. John's gospel is structured, these seven miracles that Jesus does, and they're not just miracles, but they're signs telling us something of his identity, telling us something about what it means to believe in him, something about what it means to have life in his name. So tonight we reach our third sign the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. And as is our custom, I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament. Um, We want to do our very best to read from the scriptures, often publicly, but in particular to just help you see the way themes connect across the scriptures. So from Isaiah 35, I'll be reading as well as our sermon text, John chapter 5. And I'll also add a brief reading from John chapter 20. So would you listen closely and carefully to this God's word to us and for us tonight? Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then from John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And from John 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we respond by saying thanks be to God as an acknowledgement of our deep need and hunger, not for bread alone, but instead for, our, for every word that comes from your mouth. So Lord, would you nourish us on these words? Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you do the thing that only you can do? Lord, that's in your kindness and your mercy that you would come and shine light on these words and shine light on our hearts and use them, Lord, to shape us into the people you'd have us be. So that's our prayer. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So these moments are dotted throughout the gospel stories. And by gospel stories, I mean the first few books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're telling of the story of Jesus. And by dotted throughout those stories, I mean that a moment like this occurs at every critical turn in those same stories. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of John, a moment like this happens at every critical juncture and the story then proceeds from there. And by these moments that keep being dotted throughout the gospel story, by these moments, I mean a moment like this where Jesus will say something or Jesus will do something and the people around him, typically either his disciples or the religious leaders of the day, will see him do that thing, or they'll hear him say that thing, and they'll look at each other, almost to tap each other on the shoulder and say, who does this guy think he is? And this is the first of those kind of moments in the Gospel of John. See, Jesus does something here and he says something here, and it leaves everybody thinking, what? Who does he think he is? So there's a lot in this story. So we're gonna do our best to take it one movement at a time. And here's the three questions I wanna ask to try to mind the depths of this story. Three questions. This is kind of the outline in advance. Question number one, what exactly did Jesus just do here? Question number two, what did it mean? Because remember, these signs are not just miracle stories, but they're miracle stories that are signs that are pointing us to something deeper to believe about Jesus. So that second question is, what does it mean? And the third question I wanna ask you tonight is what about you? 
And what about me? Because these healing stories are signs pointing us to something to be believed about Jesus so that, you heard me just read it, we can have life in his name. So what about you and me? So as we proceed through these questions, there's a main thing I think we're gonna arrive at, and I wanna just tell it to you so you don't miss it. Okay, here's the main thing I think John wants you to get from this story. It's the main thing I want you to get from this sermon. Ready? Jesus is God. Jesus possesses all authority. God's work is Jesus' work, and Jesus' work is God's work. Now, you probably came in here and saying, Joel, we don't need to be convinced of that. We believe Jesus is God. I mean, you just heard us, we're here, we're singing, we're worshiping. This is a church, for goodness sake. And I believe you. So at least I want you to sort of gain hold in a fresh way of the fullness of what exactly that means, that Jesus is God, and what that might mean for your life and for mine. So let's take a look. First question, what exactly did Jesus just do here? So I'm gonna walk you through some noteworthy details. I could tell you 30 things, I'm gonna tell you just a few, okay? Look with me in verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So you can just imagine the scene. There's a small pool outside of this one area that, that's very noteworthy for its architecture. This is why John is pointing it out. He wants you to know he's not making this up. You know that place where it has those columns right there by the temple? There's a pool there. You know the pool I'm talking about, right? And you know the way that people blind, lame, paralyzed um, are, are just laid out sick all in front of this pool. You know that, right? There's a healing pool. And all these people, this sea of human pain and suffering and brokenness is laid out there at that place. And Jesus walks in. And look at another noteworthy thing that Jesus does, verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you wanna be healed? So this man has been laying there, an invalid, paralyzed, lame, we don't know why or how, for 38 years. Okay, I'm 39 years old, almost my entire life. That man would have been sitting there. I'm not even good at math, but I think it's 13,870 days he sat there. John gives us kind of a throwaway line. He had been there a long time, you think? But Jesus sees him and he knows that about the man. See, one thing you learn in the Gospel of John, and this is an obvious statement, but Jesus knows stuff. And he initiates and moves toward this hurting man. Now, this is noteworthy because so far in the Gospel of John, people have been mostly coming to Jesus for ministry. Remember, they've run out of wine. 
um, sir, my son is, is at the point of death. He's, he's sick. But in this case, Jesus sees and he moves with compassion to this hurting, broken man. And what's so unbelievably noteworthy in verse six, and you heard me read it, Jesus asked him, do you wanna be healed? Now, isn't that obvious? He clearly wants to be healed. That's why he's there. But one thing to know about Jesus in particular, and one thing to know about the way Jesus is portrayed in the gospel stories, and I don't know how to say it to you other than this, Jesus never asks questions that he does not already know the answer to. It's not his style. So when he asks a question like this, and we see him doing it all over the gospel stories, he's trying to stir and poke and prod at something deeper going on inside. In this case, he's trying to stir and poke and prod at this man's paralyzed hope. So he'd been laying there for 38 years and you just would have to imagine that his hope had evaporated. And he even says as much in verse Seven. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up, and while I'm going in, another one steps in before me. See, there's a superstition that when these springs that were underneath this pool and the springs would give water and bubble up, there's a superstition that an angel had stirred it up, and who could ever whoever could get in the pool the fastest after the water started bubbling, that person would be healed. He's saying, I can't walk, I can't get down there, I don't, and I don't even have anybody to help me. That's what Jesus is asking. He's trying to poke and stir at that stuff. I don't know if you've ever had this feeling that you just wish that Jesus would do what you asked him to do and not mess around as much. Right? He doesn't do that. Of course, that's frustrating. But it cuts in a beautiful way, too, because it also means we're always getting from him more than we could ever ask or think. Jesus is stirring all of that inside this man. In verse 8, Jesus responds, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, 13,870 days of sitting there, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Again, it's noteworthy that Jesus is able to accomplish this by the power of his word. John preached to us last week that because Jesus says it, now the creative order starts bending around what he said to do. We get another example of that here. And it's a great story. And in some ways, we're like, it should end here. Jesus moves with compassion. He heals a man. End of story. Let's move on. But there's more. That's what Jesus did, but it means more. And we get the first hint at this second question. What did it mean? At the back half of verse 9. 
And once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked and then the back half. Now that was the Sabbath. So now we're into the problem. You know how when you watch a movie um, or you read a book and you kind of know the story and you're following it along and you can kind of tell where it's going, then all of a sudden the camera pans to some little detail in the corner. And when you see that detail, you're like, oh, you realize there's more here. And that's exactly what's going on here. To the reader in John's day, the minute he, they read this line or hear this line, now that was the Sabbath, they're like, oh, you're kidding me. Now that was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. See, at this time, the good gift, the spiritual discipline, we could call it, of the Sabbath that was given in the Old Testament law as a gift, as a spiritual discipline to remind God's people that they were more than their productivity, that their identity was not about what they could do and accomplish and work to produce. But instead, for one day a week, they could relax and rest and be healed and refreshed in the joy and the gladness and the blessing that comes from belonging to God, regardless of what they could accomplish or do or produce. See, that good gift of that Sabbath law, by the time it has been added to tradition after tradition and teaching after teaching, had kind of built into this teaching. In fact, 39 little things had been added to that good gift in order to police people's observance of it. 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath. And one of them was to pick up a mat or pick up something and walk and go somewhere. That would have been work. And so these religious leaders who very likely knew this man who had sat there for 38 years, they're not even noticing the fact that he can walk now because they're, ex they're extremely worried that he kept the rule right. And it makes me wonder, why couldn't Jesus just wait a day? But he couldn't. I mean, the man had been there 13,870 days. He can't wait another day. That's the kind of compassion that comes from Jesus. Ernest Hemingway, the famous 20th century novelist, went bankrupt one time and he was asked, how did you become bankrupt? And he answered, and I love this. He answered, slowly, then suddenly. <laughs> And it is worth noting that that's the way Jesus works too. Very, very, very slowly. Then suddenly. So he can't wait another day because of compassion. He also can't wait another day because he's trying to stir this argument. And he also could heal any way that he wants, but he intentionally told him to pick up a mat to heal him in order to cause an argument. I'm telling you, this is crazy stuff here. Are y'all with me here? Are y'all feet? 
And the man says, and I'll paraphrase, the man says, you know, I don't know who healed, who healed me. The guy who healed me is already gone because it said Jesus withdrew. Jesus in the gospel stories is constantly trying to stay away from a big crowd and something spectacular, which is such a indictment on some of the ways we judge ministry success, by the way. If it's big and if it's spectacular, it must have been good. Not according to Jesus. He withdraws from that. He later comes back into the temple and sees the man and says, I see that you're well. Go and sin no more so nothing worse will happen to you. Well, that's mighty authoritative talk for him to move it from being healed to something having to do with sin. And then at that moment, you guys heard me read it. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So then he goes and rats Jesus out. So he's not in trouble. And we're told that the religious leaders are so frustrated. Verse 16, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Okay, we've gone from persecuting him to now killing him? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders of the day are frustrated with Jesus for two reasons. One, he's breaking the Sabbath, and I'm gonna explain that. Two, he's claiming that he is God. And I'm gonna explain that. First, they're mad because he breaks the Sabbath. He tells this guy to do this thing on the Sabbath. And here's what Jesus is saying here. You have to catch what Jesus is saying here. And this is me paraphrasing Jesus. I know, I know. This is me adding more from what the gospel stories tell us. But Jesus is essentially saying this in this moment. Jesus is saying for everyone to hear, he's saying, and he initiates the conversation with them. He's saying, I get to decide the Sabbath. He's saying the Sabbath was a gift for my purposes. He's saying the purpose of the Sabbath was to bring healing and blessing and wholeness to people. And that's what I'm doing. He's saying the Sabbath was always a shadow that pointed to the rest you would find in me. He's saying, I am the true Sabbath rest and the work that I'm doing is the same work that the Lord, the God of Israel has been doing. Who does he think he is? You, you guys have to see, you have to see this. Jesus thinks and he knows because he is God. And you have to see this. He is purposely right now flexing that authority. This is a power move by Jesus. Now he uses his power to heal and we're gonna talk about that in just a second. So here's the second violation, okay? If the first violation is Sabbath breaking, the second violation is he's making himself equal with God. Here's what he says in verses 17 to 19, and I'm going to paraphrase again. 
He says, I'm telling you, I don't do anything unless by my own initiative. I only do what the Father has given me to do. He's saying the Father and me are one. The God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Old Testament creator, Lord of all the universe, I am one with that God. I do the same things that that God does. That God's been working and now I am. You know, every now and then in my household, okay, we have a conversation about authority and where the lines of authority lie in our house. So every now and then, perhaps hypothetically, one of my children, one of whom is in the room right now, but it's not him (laughs) or the other two. We'll let you figure it out. But every now and then in our household, we have to have a conversation about who the boss is here. And we have to say to one of our children, um, in essence, listen, our work, mama and I's work is not your work. You don't need to enter into authority and take over this situation because your work and your authority is very distinct from mine. And what I want you to hear me say today is Jesus is saying exactly opposite of that. Here's another illustration if that authority in the household thing didn't work for you, okay? I watched the Olympics, Summer Olympics last year, and there's a lot of strange things about synchronized swimming, okay? But one of the things that's amazing about synchronized swimming is the way that the swimmers swim so perfectly in unity in their every move. And they train for years and years and years and years to move as one for two or three minutes. Now imagine being synced up and moving in union with somebody like that from all eternity that way, and all of eternity that way. So you'd have to share the same essence to do that. In other words, who does Jesus think he is when he's saying things like this? And it's interesting because they immediately understand what he's saying, they completely get it, and that's why they want to kill him. So what did Jesus do? He heals this man on the Sabbath as an act of compassion. What did it mean? He does it on the Sabbath in a certain way in order to make a flex power move. Third question. Cool story, Joel. Why should I care? So what? What about me tomorrow? Because remember, this whole story has been told to you so that you can believe in Jesus and take hold of life in his name. So this is the life in his name part of the story. I'm gonna share with you, there's probably a thousand things. There's probably a thousand ways that we could receive life in Jesus' name from a story like this. But I will tell you three, three ways to receive life in his name. And some of this is gonna be a little hard to hear. 
Okay, here's the first way to receive life in Jesus' name, yield to him. Let me explain what I mean. This story makes it so undeniably clear that Jesus is Lord of all. And that just very naturally puts you and me in our places. We are not Lord of all. We're not Lord of anything. You and I are not in control of our own life. You and I do not get to decide the way things are. He's Lord of all. A text like this is supposed to bring us low. Further on this idea of yielding to him. If he's Lord of all, then following him is not some fickle thing. Later, he's going to talk about, in this same text, a few verses later, past what we read, he's going to talk about how the son himself, he has the authority of life and death and the authority to judge. Following someone like that is not a fickle thing. In other words, you and I are responsible to the degree that we respond to him. When we see him on display in this text as Lord of all, we are now responsible for how we respond to him. This is where the Jesus as a great moral teacher thing kind of doesn't work anymore. See, see we, t- we think about Jesus' person and his work like it's just coming down a social media feed and we kind of like it and we just sort of move on to do whatever it is we're gonna do. That doesn't work. If Jesus is Lord of all, Jesus, and you've heard me say this to you so many times in the last five years, but if Jesus is Lord of all, then he cannot be pursued as some kind of side interest of our life. It doesn't work. I'm talking to me. So yield to him so you can find life in his name. Here's a second way to receive life in Jesus' name from this story. There's probably a thousand things. I'm gonna give you a second one. Receive from him. And let me explain what I mean. Y'all, the good news tonight, the gospel news, the announcement I'm here to make to you is that Jesus is Lord of all that he possesses all power and all might and all authority. But let me show you why that is good, okay? So I want you to imagine something bad for a second. Imagine someone who possessed all authority. Imagine someone who held all power and all might and could at any moment always do anything they wanted to do to the full extent that they wanted to do it for any reason whatsoever immediately. Imagine a person like that. Imagine a person like that is in your life. Imagine a person like that is in your home. Imagine a person like that is in your neighborhood. Imagine a person like that is on your team, a coworker, like a governing official. Imagine a person like that. Are you not, the minute I described it, aren't you immediately suspicious of that person and maybe afraid of them? And the reason why that is true It's because human persons, their desires and their attitudes and their actions are disordered and bent out of shape so that their natural orientation is to use that kind of power and might in selfish ways in order to harm. 
Now imagine, I hope you imagine a good thing. Now imagine a person who held all power, all might, all authority, all capability, could do anything they ever wanted to do to the fullest extent that they wanted to do it at any time they wanted ever. Now imagine that person at the same time only uses that authority to heal, only uses it to bless, only uses it to guard and protect, only uses it in the highest way to give himself on a cross for you and me in order to use that power to defeat the powers of evil, sin, death, and hell. Now you're not suspicious of that person, you feel safe with them. I don't know when the last time someone told you, actually I do, it was two weeks ago, I said it. But I want you to hear me say it again. A story like this tells us once again that the most powerful person in all of the universe is at the same time the most kind, the most compassionate, And he's using his power and his might and his authority here in order to bring healing and blessing to a person, but in order to take on the rulers and the powers of authority to set people free. See, that's the kind of Lord that you can follow. With everything that you are. So yield to him, receive from him. The third way to receive life in his name, this is the last thing I'm gonna say, is to participate with him. See, in this story, Jesus says that the Father has sent him. He is doing the work that the Father is doing. And later in the Gospel of John, he will breathe onto his disciples. That's those disciples in that scene, it's also you and me. He'll breathe his spirit onto these disciples and he will say, receive my spirit. And then he'll say, just like the Father sent me, now I'm sending you to be about this work of compassion and mercy it's an invitation to participate in his mission. And I have to tell you that the same opposition Jesus has here will be the opposition that will come upon you. Following Jesus does not make your life any easier. But it does load it with abundant life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, these things are easier, of course, to talk about from a pulpit than to yield to, receive from, and participate with in the real things of our life. So we ask that your spirit now would make translations. God, would you bring us low? Lord, would you give us hope? Would you stir our affections? Or would you help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen.